Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Bit More Complicated, the podcast where you can hear science-based discussions about important topics, issues, and problems in society, and what we can do to make them better. I'm Manny Galvan at UNC Chapel Hill. And I'm Dylan Selterman at Johns Hopkins University. Today, we are joined by Dr. Beth Livingston. She is an associate professor in management and entrepreneurship at University of Iowa's College of Business. She focuses on studying gender, stereotyping, discrimination, and management between work and family life. Dr. Livingston's work has been featured in the New York Times, NPR, and Harvard Business Review, and of course, in top-tier academic journals. So without further ado, Dr. Livingston, welcome to our podcast. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, And it's funny, the way that we met is kind of interesting. So I follow, uh, I guess, a colleague of yours in the business realm, Michael Krauss, who's been a a guest on the show as well, on Twitter. And I saw him and other people paying attention to uh, this communications piece about a recent article and kind of complaining about it. And so I started investigating the comments. um, And the communications piece was about an academic journal article that was complaining about wokeness. So that paper was written by Waldman and Spar. I was complaining about wokeness, which is no new thing on Twitter. So-called wokeness is a common punching bag for a lot of people that are right of center. Um, what is odd here is that it was being done in a science communication piece from a reputable scientific journal, which I thought that was very interesting. And I could also see why that that was upsetting to some. And I saw you in the comments saying that you were co-authoring a response to this piece in an academic journal setting as well. So we want to invite you. Basically, the, the idea was to invite you and Dr. Waldman separately, not to like pit you against each other in a live conversation, but like talk to both of you, understand the issue from quote unquote both sides and like let the audience kind of understand that more. I will say that uh, I reached out to both of you I got through several emails with Dr. Waldman, uh, and he showed some initial interest in talking to us, but he decided against joining us when I shared the specific, like, critical questions that we were going to frame the conversation around our points of disagreement, as opposed to kind of, like, doing a more uh, uh, just, like, what does your article say kind of interview. And so we we wanted to frame it around the debate, and he preferred not to spend his time on uh, interviewing with us. So instead, we are going to interview you, Dr. Livingston. We appreciate you being here. Beth, thank you for joining us. Um, so let's just jump right into it. So your recent critique paper was written in response to Waldman and Spar's paper titled Rethinking Diversity Strategies, an approach, uh, sorry, an application of paradox and positive organization behavioral theories. Geez, these papers really have, uh, they're just like expertly titled to- We love colon something, <laughs> yeah. right? Like you need to have a secondary clause yeah. in your title. No no uh, bashing the, them for writing that title is is common. Oh no, I have, our, our article right. also has a colon right, right, right. and a thing. So yes, 100%. And, and their paper was on the problems of woke DEI initiatives, DEI standing for diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is very popular right now. It's a, it's a kind of a popular research area, I think, and a lot of people are talking about it, especially in like academic Twitter spaces, stuff like that. So we wanted to get your critique of their paper, but first, uh, we'd love for you to summarize in your own words the like central thrust of the Waldman paper um, and what what they were kind of saying, and then let's like talk about why you had an issue with it. But first, we just want the the summary of their paper from your perspective. Yeah. 
So there were two things that happened. So there was a paper that was written in the Academy of Management Perspectives, a journal that is part of our management, our central keynote flagship management professional organization, has two of the most top journals in our field, Academy of Management Review and Academy of Management Journal, um, that are considered the most top tier journals that you can publish in, um, in management. And Academy of Management Perspectives is another flagship journal for that organization that's focused a lot on speaking about practice, speaking to practice. Like what are the what are the important practical policies and procedures that organizations need to know? Um, there's also a communication arm of the Academy of Management called Insights that takes the articles that have been written and published by folks like myself um, and summarizes them for a business audience and distributes the newsletter to business subscribers, et cetera. So people who are using, hopefully going to translate our research into practice, right? And so what went out and what really captured a lot of people's you know, information at the time was this, you know, insights, this, this kind of write-up of the paper itself, which of course led those of us who have access to the journal to read the paper itself. And so, because oftentimes, you know, write-ups about research, like, are they really accurate? Who knows? Like, it, it's important to always go to the source, I think, to make sure that you're accurately describing what people's arguments are. And so Waldman and Spar's article is essentially presenting a type of what they call a new diversity strategy that they argue will be more effective in organizations. And they call these integrative strategies. Um they then, as contrast, present something they call woke diversity strategies as contrast to what they call an integrative diversity strategies. And the theoretical background that they use is something called paradox theory. And the idea behind paradox theory is just that there are certain things that might be, you know, goals that we both have or that we have we hold simultaneously that are in tension in conflict with one another. And it is there thus paradoxical that we want to do both things that seem to be in tension with one another. And the central paradox that they introduced um, is what they call the tension or the paradox between diversity and unity, that we both want things to be diverse and we want things to be the same um, at the same time. Um, so this is their central thrust, is that there's this paradox, um, diverse, what they call woke strategies, um, and organizations only think about diversity, and what they call integrative strategies, think about both, you know, integrate this paradox, okay? So that's their basic thrust, which in general, aside from the use of the word woke, which we'll get into here in a moment, seems fairly benign, right? Like, oh, there are some, there are good diversity strategies that are effective and there are bad diversity strategies that are not effective. And yes, there are tensions in terms of what we want to achieve in organizations. Um, so that is what I would, would call the thrust of it. And I imagine that's what the authors would say that their intentions for this piece were. And it's not until you dig down into what they've actually written and you actually see what they've written that you realize the, the concerns that we had as authors when we wrote our response. Yeah, I, I'm like super sympathetic to the idea of paradoxes. Like I think paradox theory is all over us. I mean, it just seems like everywhere, everywhere. there are many things that mm -hmm. are in tension with one another. And if we want to solve yep. problem A, we're often like doing it at the expense of problem B. Um, so all of that, I think the way you've laid it out seems very charitable and it seems very like that is kind of a, a worthwhile project that, that one might yep. undergo. And there's even a new book that just came out from Harvard Business Review called Both and Thinking by two like premier researchers of paradox theory, Wendy Smith and Marianne Lewis. Like it just came out like this past year and it's all about how 
paradox theory like leads to more paradoxes in general can lead us to more creative, flexible, impactful decisions, right? So paradoxes, you're right, are everywhere. And there's a long, long literature on this, you know, which I think is relevant to the point I'll make up later. Like this is not new, Right. right? The fact that paradoxes are all around us. Of course, we're familiar with the idea of paradoxes, but I think paradox theory might be something that is more commonly used in in your field. Is there a good go-to example of just the the presence of a paradox that is successfully resolved mm-hmm. with creativity and ingenuity rather than just saying, oh, we can't do both of these things, so we're going to give up on one of them? Because I, I guess one of my concerns in this discourse is that some people are saying, we can't be diverse and unified at the same time. So let's just do uni- unification and not diversity, which seems like a bad way of thinking about it. But if we had some precedent for saying, here's how some paradoxes have been resolved with more creativity in other things, we can apply that yeah, same logic and here. So that is one, you've hit on one of the central thrusts of paradox theory, which is that we have to encourage both and thinking instead of if then thinking, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that it's that it's that embrace of how we can allow, how we can sit with paradox in our life and manage it that allows us to achieve great things, right? A creativity, innovation, maximum effectiveness, right? Um, and so the book I just, is a really great entree and thereby researchers in this area, some of the predominant researchers. And so it's okay. a great entree to what we know about paradox theory and different types of paradoxes that you know have been managed to sort of optimize these sorts of outcomes. But um, I think what's interesting about this, and I'll take this from a diversity and inclusion lens, is think about the words, diversity and inclusion. That is the paradox. Diversity and inclusion, difference, you know, you're we are both separate and we are together, right? And that is one of our central kind of arguments here is we all the, the literature itself has been embracing this paradox since its inception. The fact that there are people who are different and we need to have representation, but we also need to include everyone in a way that makes people feel included. And I think, you know, but Right. I think that the ways in which this they frame their paradox and Waldman and Spar is that it's not diversity and inclusion, it's diversity and sameness. Right. Um, But I think when we present paradoxes, we have to present paradoxes that actually, um, you know, are part and parcel of what people are experiencing um, and what we want to produce. And so there might be indeed be a paradox of diversity and sameness that we both like it's the same idea as complementary and supplementary fit in our field. That means there are sometimes people fit because they fill a hole. They fill a gap like a puzzle piece of what we need. And sometimes people fit because they're similar. Right. And both of those things are true. Um, But in this, there are very few organizations who say we want everybody to be the same in terms of skill, right? Like their sameness is not what people are, are typically trying to achieve. And so framing sameness as an organizational goal um, is not necessarily grounded in the literature. And that starts, I think, some of our concerns is a lot of issues that are brought up in this piece um, standing alone are not objectionable per se. It's just when you start to look at the context and you say, well, where's the review of the literature that digs into this and your point of what's the actual paradox here? And is this paradox grounded in what the literature understands these constructs to be. Um, 
that is where our biggest concerns are. Um, and it's the same idea of, okay, well, unity, well, what does that mean? You have to define things. Um, and that's right. where we get a little lost in this piece, which is, well, okay, no one inclusion is unity, right? Like, like in terms of the way they've defined it. And so we have been talking about this paradox then, if that's the definition of the paradox. And so I think that is one of our major concerns is there's some muddy definitions here, which fly in many places in right, our lives. Right. Like we talk about words mean many of different things, but in academia, we try to be less esoteric, I think, um, and clearer. Right. Yeah, and, and conceptual clarity is something that we really need to strive for here. So we should probably get into the term woke and because that's 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 how they frame their piece is in terms of this word woke. And it seems like some people have different definitions of this word and it's they're giving a definition that you're you're kind of challenging them on this. So we we should probably just discuss like your critique of the idea of woke. Yeah, and and I say uh, thank you for this because I think that was there are many things like we disagree with and the way we've the way we as a field and academics in general approach disagreement is okay. Well, if you disagree with a piece, then publish a rebuttal, like publish a response, um, and that's why we did this because it's not just that we disagree with the conclusions. There's so many papers that are written, and I'm like, eh. I might have done this differently or um, I'm not sure I would have framed it or, or mm. measured this construct. I mean, that's what peer review is all about is challenging those decisions. But when a paper is published and gets through peer review and has issues that we saw in this piece, particularly around construct clarity and around um, reckoning with past literature, we have major concerns about what that means for the credibility of our field. And that is why we felt moved to action. Um, we also are diversity researchers. And we've been doing this for many decades. And so we, when you are in the diversity inclusion field, your research impacts real people's lives, okay? Particularly in a context that we're in now politically, where people are making laws about the sorts of things that can be taught, the sorts of things that can be said, where organizations are in this tension of how do we include without excluding, right? Like these, these are... And when you're out there, like we are talking to companies all the time, these are, that's the paradox right, that we, that gets brought up to us. And so they're looking to those of us in academia to help provide solutions. And therefore we have a responsibility um, to provide that. And so that's the impetus behind when we do this, like, obviously whatever my ideological, you know, bent is, I could publish an op-ed, I could post on Twitter and rant on wherever, Um but our quibble with this was really academic in nature. And I think it really starts with what you said, Dylan, which is that that word woke that they use. They don't use it in the way that we expect academics to use constructs and the terms for constructs. They use it in a colloquial way and in, yes, and what we would argue an inflammatory way. So first things first is they define woke, they put it in quotes and they define woke on page one with a footnote. And the way they define it is based on the dictionary definition of woke, which is it's used for being aware of racial injustice or racial or social discrimination injustice. That's what the dictionary says. Being woke means being aware of injustice. But they, they do a little sleight of hand on this definition on the first page. And I think that it's important that we point that out, right? Instead of saying woke is defined in the dictionary as being aware of social discrimination and injustice, which if you look at the literature, the very few things that have published using that word woke, that's how the definition in our academic literature is absolutely used, right? Woke being aware of discrimination and injustice. 
on page one, their footnote is woke is a catch all term that has been used in modern vernacular to coincide with leftist movements and ideologies, especially emphasizing identity politics and what is perceived by its proponents to be social injustice. Thus, it is mainly used for referring to racial and social discrimination and injustice. And then they cite a dictionary definition that says woke is being aware. Uh, It doesn't link it to leftist politics. It doesn't link it to ideology. It doesn't link it to identity politics. And they don't define what those things mean. And so in that, we were very concerned and our, our radar went up and we're like, this is not the way we talk about constructs in our field. I think even putting aside the differences in how we might define this term and how slippery it is, probably citing the dictionary is not a great method for uh, establishing what a construct is like we would rarely see that in science and we would you know I, I would be surprised to see someone referencing a dictionary yeah, it's like definition. when we tell our students not to cite wikipedia right like we're like eh. and they don't actually cite the dictionary they cite a time magazine article about the dictionary um and so again like there are these small slights of hand that are not egregious. They're just demonstrative of something that I would like to think in a flagship journal we would be beyond, I get as academics. Right. And I, I think I'm in agreement with you there. I, I guess I was curious. So I did a quick dictionary.com search for woke. And it does say, uh, it, it, of or relating to a liberal progressive orthodoxy, especially promoting uh, policies or ideologies regarding ethnic, racial, or sexual minorities. So I guess, you know, I, that that's not to defend their approach. I think this is a bad approach, but the most charitable read possible, it, uh, you know, that that's that's kind of what I'm striving for. But I, I agree with you. And and they, they also have another footnote. This is on the bottom of uh, page 14 in the copy of the manuscript I have. Uh, the connection between CRT and woke organizations exists, but is not altogether clear. The concept of woke is somewhat nebulous. It exists in current day parlance, but a definition at least somewhat open to interpretation. So again, I just want to have the most charitable read possible yeah. of what they're doing, but I agree with you totally. in the substance that this is probably not the right approach. And, and I would say just to respond to that, it is a great point, right? Like if you look at Merriam-Webster Dictionary, right? That article was about the Oxford Dictionary entering it in and had a very particular definition that that they did not pull through. But you are right. Like if you go, if I'm at the Merriam-Webster, right? Like they start with aware of and attended to racial and social justice. And then you get down into a, the disapproving right. way. So it's characterized right. as this is the disapproving way to use woke, which again, they don't say right. Right. that they are right. that they disapprove of. You, you, you get the hints of it later on. Um, but but I think to your point, you're right, right? Like it's not like we're done, like I'm like right. unaware of the fact that people use woke in a disapproving way to mean these sorts of things that they're saying. But the academic literature has not. Yes. And so I think yes. if they're going to introduce a new a new definition of a construct that people have been using in different ways in the academic literature, then it's incumbent upon them to describe that construct and say why they're defining it that way. Um, and that is, I think, our argument of like yep. You can't have those things both ways. Like you need to be clear, yep. but you make a really great. It's, yeah. it's also super weird to not acknowledge this context. I feel like if you're going to use a term that has been intentionally been this like very difficult to define word, it started in the black community as being again, like it's an African-American vernacular word that meant aware to racial injustice and like stay woke. This was like an idea that started there. And then it's been moved into this pejorative 
context where it is used as a way to like shut down somebody if they're being too woke it's used constantly on fox news it's used constantly in the right-wing media as a pejorative term and it's funny because they mention pejorative wokeness but it's woke washing which is a separate completely different which is not being woke enough concept (laughs) right kind of funny yeah they, and they don't mention at all the right wing way of associating woke with just anything that is called liberal nonsense, right? Like, and and it's following the same lineage of politically correct, of social justice warrior for those of you who are online a lot, or identity politics. All of these terms are kind of used as a way to like tell liberals that they're being insane or whatever. And so, just to like not acknowledge the context of this word is very odd to me uh, as a reader. Obviously, I'm coming at this from a particular perspective, right? Obviously, right. Um, but the quote that you just read, Dylan, about uh, like on page 14 when they're talking about this sort of nebulous, they use a citation to a New York Post article, right? A New York right. Post op-ed that says that critical race theory is part of the woke agenda. Like that's right. so. Right. This is their, but they're not saying this is how, like. This is how it's used in right wing media or used and they're using right. it as a as evidence. And so, again, like yeah. there's this sleight of hand yeah. that's happening that's not transparent about this is how woke has been right used in the 1970s. Right. In terms of, you know, racial and ethnic you know awareness of injustice, you know, but since the, the, the lineage of this word has changed and we're using it in this way, there's no like direct here's how we're using the term it's through these sleight of hands of citations that you have to go then follow and we did every mm-hmm. single citation that they cited i read <laughs> and uh, and because i wanted to give them the respect that i think you know it deserves when someone publishes a paper in a peer-reviewed journal yeah it would be really easy just to say hey listen this is a right-wing media outlet saying the word woke and here's how they mean it like that that doesn't cost yeah. them anything to say that mm-hmm. and and they don't and I think in that way, it tries to establish the fact that we all know what this word means, right? Like, we all know that this is bad, right? And I think that that is what, and that's why they use it as their example is the bad thing to do. <laughs> and so because it's, they're using it in a pejorative way, because it's the way they read the word, which is fine. But that's not what we do in academic or what we should do, I should say. It's obviously what has been done, but it's not what we should do. We argue in academic journals is like, we should define the constructs we use and sort through the academic literature on those terms to make sure that our constructs are clear. So in the paper, Waldman and Spar uh, pit so-called diversity or woke approaches against unity or integrative approaches. And we kind of talked about this a little bit. Um, And we've discussed a little bit of the history of the term woke, but I'm hoping you can help us understand a little bit more of the history of these other terms, diversity, unity, integrative. Um, And in your critique, you point out how this, for someone who studies diversity and is in this area, these are just odd choices of words to use in this context. Um, Something that stood out to me was certain quotes like, uh, here's a quote from their paper. Without unity, diversity can potentially pull an organization apart. It was almost like this odd way that like they were put into tension. We've been talking about paradox theory. There are certainly paradoxes where good things are in tension with one another. I, I guess I'm just not sold. on. There's no citation to that statement right there. Um, I'm not sold on the idea that unity and diversity are in tension with each other. It seems like if you want to incorporate people who are from different backgrounds... Unity and diversity are going hand in hand, because if I want to unify a diverse group, I need diversity in the group. So it just seemed like a weird choice. I'm I'm curious if you could guide us through the history there, but also their decision to do that. Well, I would not 
um, attempt to get into their heads as to why they said the things that they said. Um, however, right. I would say that what you point out there, which is these, you know, sections that make these declarative statements that seem like if they were true, we would find literature that has supported these things, right? Um, but there aren't citations around them. If you go and you take, you know, just a general survey of those of us who have been researching in this field and the field of diversity and inclusion, which is a large field with a lot of incredible researchers in it, these are not the terms we use. We use diversity and we use inclusive climate. We use, and when do we say diversity, we say things like representation diversity, right? We talk about diversity at the deep level, which is things like diversity in attitudes and perceptions, diversity at the surface level, things like, you know, rate, the demography, things that you can see. We talk about diversity at many levels. Um, and when we talk about this construct that they talk about, you know, unity, you know, we don't talk about sameness. And so they define unity as sameness. And I don't know anybody mm -hmm who defines unity as sameness. Unity in terms of inclusion and bringing people together and finding agreement perhaps. Um, and so that's why, you know, there's a whole area of our field that looks at things like inclusive climate, um, the ways in which people feel included at work, feel like they belong. There's a whole new and growing burdening area of research on belongingness at work. Those areas, uh, these are not the terminology we use. And that's why it was incredibly odd. And we spent a lot of time, you know, you almost start to gaslight yourself. You're like, did I miss like a huge area of the field over the past decade? Like, did I miss something? <laughs> um, but the fact that I think they're not citing these things is telling, because if there were a lot of people who were talking about these issues in this way, right, there would be. And alternatively, if they think that their way of talking about it is more accurate or more appropriate, then that's what the academic literature is meant to do, which is let's describe the way it has been talked about and why your way of discussing it is better, more appropriate, more accurate, which also is not done. So we, I mean, in our response, we list dozens of researchers in diversity and inclusion that have not been cited or referenced. And, you know, not that everyone needs to be cited or referenced, but there, it is very telling what is left out of this paper, which it would be very difficult for anyone who is not an expert in this area to recognize. There was another point. Oh, yeah. There was another point to your question, which was about integrative strategies. Again, you know, there's a lot of things that are relatively I don't know if benign is the right word, but that are non-controversial. Yeah, diversity and inclusion strategies in the workplace should somehow balance inclusion and diversity is not an incredibly controversial statement. Um, it's the sorts of things we go into organizations all the time to talk about. It's the reason why, you know, people have started, you know, reversing the way we talk about different things like inclusion and diversity. And so, right, like these are common right. conversations. There's also not uncommon and not controversial to say that the diversity literature is in a debate about what works, right? What's effective. Um, but to present this as something new, like people in diversity and inclusion have never thought of the fact that we need to focus on diversity and inclusion. That was a little strange to us, right? Um, and so I think, again, bold claims require bold evidence. And so that sort of evidence was not something that we saw in this piece. I, I'm so glad that you brought up the idea that we're still trying to figure out what kinds of diversity strategies or initiatives or trainings are actually effective. And a part of that just involves doing basic science, doing things like randomized control trials and measuring outcomes. And there are people that I've seen make, I think, very substantive and good faith critiques 
of, you know, the fact that like a lot of these diversity trainings that people will just take for granted, oh, this is good, are actually not effective. And that's kind of what I was expecting to read when I first opened this paper. And I was disappointed that I did not see that. It wasn't a methodological critique of diversity-related initiatives and trainings. It was more of just a kind of rant about concepts that were unfriendly to the authors. And that's, you know, I, I think if, if I were trying to write a piece like this, it would be to say, okay, we need to have conceptual clarity around our terms, and also we need to measure outcomes in a way that justifies the efforts and initiatives we're putting into this. The best critiques that I've seen are coming from scientific studies where they actually measure outcomes, like how much people feel included and how much they feel belongingness at work. And if we're not yeah. achieving that goal, then we need to rethink our strategies. So that that should That's be not it. controversial. That, that, yeah, that that should be the message. No, but but I want to point out something you say there, Dylan, which is really really important, and which they don't cover. There are decades, literal. I I think the first sort of meta analysis on diversity training and like reviews was like over ten years ago on diversity training effectiveness of diversity scholars in our field, people like Katarina Bezrukova, like. People like Quinetta Roberson, like like all these people have been talking about this. This is not a surprise. Right. It's not like the people in diversity and inclusion are like, we have it all solved and you can't critique us. We're critiquing ourselves all the time. We're constantly saying what works, what doesn't work. How can we do it? And so the fact that like you're not citing the long meta analytic work that talks about, you know, and the reviews and the, OK, what does this mean moving forward? Um it's very difficult to do randomized controlled trials and diversity inclusion because you have to do it in the field in organizations yes, and true. companies don't like that. Um, but yes. at the same time, there are people who are attempting to do those things. And, you know, I think it is, and we will be some among of the first to be like, this is not a good or effective diversity training program. Right. And we can look at these sorts of things. And there are people like Laura Morgan Roberts, whose entire career is on looking at, you know, diversity training. There's long HBR. If you're not into academic, like there's a lot of work on this. And I think, you know, you can look, there's a shorthand to just scan the references section of something and say, okay, are the people I would expect to be cited cited? Um, and in this, they weren't. And so then we go and we're like, okay, maybe they're not making the argument we think they're making, but they are, right? And so then yeah. we go and we say, okay, well, there is so much more work that we need to do to understand how to make workplaces more diverse and more inclusive. We have so yeah. much farther to go, and this is not helping us get there. And I think that was also yeah. a concern. Yeah, you're right. RCT or randomized control trials are definitely rare in this area. I know of one PNAS paper published a few years ago that did that. We'll put it in the show notes. Uh, first author is Edward Chang, co-authored by Angela Duckworth and Adam Grant. Uh, they actually include a placebo control condition, which I thought was really cool. Oh, I mean, so, yeah, yeah, gold that's, standard. Yes. But of course, look the at the author stream, right? Like we would expect high quality work from them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. And, um, and the, I would say... That there's a 2016 psych bowl meta-analysis, like I said, by right. Katarina Bezrakova and others, right, Jamie right. Perry, Karen Jen, like that is looking at the effects. And they use 260 samples. Think about that. In 2016, there were 260 independent samples that studied diversity training. So there's a it's not like there's not a lot of literature out there to talk about yeah. this. Um, and 
even if organizations don't know about it, even if pundits and op-ed writers don't know about it, it doesn't mean it's not there. And as academics, it's our job to know that. Like, I couldn't imagine writing a paper where I wasn't like sweating over making sure I included all of the relevant literature. Right, right, right. Um, and so, yeah. you know, it it was concerning to us. Okay, so we should probably move from RCT to CRT or critical <laughs> race theory. Uh, so this this is another concept that comes up in the paper and i think they i mean i i think your argument in your paper is that they're kind of mischaracterizing it to uh something that it's not they're saying that it focuses on victimhood and saps people of their self-efficacy and that progress is an illusion and uh can you like take us through why that's incorrect and why that's not an accurate summary of critical race theory and what critical race theory like actually is. I think first things first, there are, again, there are some correct things here, right? The CRT, CRT emerged as a theory to help explain types of legal outcomes, right? So the sociology of law and society, right? So we're talking at a societal level, first of all, right? So there's levels of analysis issues that we need to understand as academics. We understand that, like, you can't you if you're going to use a theory that explains societal level outcomes to explain individual level outcomes, you need to explain how that's going to apply across levels. Um, CRT um, is very strongly grounded in sociology um, and is meant to provide an explanation for why there continue to be these racially discriminatory outcomes in society, particularly um, if you're talking about the criminal justice system, you're talking about wages and wage gaps and housing. And like there are all of these outcomes that we keep seeing. And as many theories are meant to explain why and how. And CRT, you know, is basically talking about how the structures in our society are based in racism um, and therefore have their intended outcomes as being racist um, or racially discriminatory outcomes. And so per certain parts of these definitions that Wadman and Spar present, I would not quibble with. Like at the core of CRT is the notion that racism is institutionalized or systemic throughout society and organizations. Yes, that would be a, a very strong premise. But the use of the their term commonplace and permanent is not exactly right. I, I think if you talk to any scholar in CRT, all of them that I know, for instance, would say that their goal would be to eliminate this. And so if it, if they believed that it was permanent, they wouldn't be trying to fix it, right? Um, or bringing light to it. And I think there is this idea, because it's systemic, individuals have no power. Or the opposite is systems are illusory, Right. And everything is about individuals, bad individuals making bad choices, whatever. Right. But we are academics who understand that levels of analysis exist. And so we know that these are connected, that that systems are not separate and apart from people and people not separate apart from systems. And so as academics, we can understand these things. Right. And that's why it's important we don't flatten them down to say, well, systems you know, disempower individuals because we know that individuals maintain and create systems. And so I think we want to be careful about that. And, and CRT is very clear about how these systems were created. They are not always writing scholarship on how to dismantle them. That's not always the purpose of every piece of scholarship. Sometimes it's just a description of here's how we got to where we are. Um, but the premise of CRT in general is a fairly, I would say, 
if we look at theories as being neutral, right, in terms of like they're not, they're neither evil nor good. They're just descriptive of how and why things happen. Um, CRT emerged because our current theories of why systems were creating disparate outcomes for people across racial lines, uh, they believe were insufficient to explain why we were seeing these things um, and introduced CRT to do that. In terms of the way they characterize this, again, and I think similar to dealing with the diversity and inclusion literature, there just isn't a deep reckoning. Like if I was going to write a paper about CRT, I'm going to spend months reading about it, like understanding what scholars say about it, where it comes from. Um, and there just isn't that sort of in-depth reckoning with what the theory is saying. And so there are some things that seem correct. You're pulling from the abs, like it seems like like it's directly from the abstract of the paper that they're citing. And there's other things where I'm like, I read that paper 30 times and couldn't find the conclusion you were drawing from that piece. And again, when you are making recommendations and trying to contribute to a literature, you need to know that literature. And we didn't feel like this was accurately described. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that they jumped, like they, they talked about CRT. They even have this quote that like talks about CRT blames racial injustice on whites or males as a whole, which I thought was really interesting because CRT focuses on systems. It's it's a systemic analysis. Like like you said, it comes from sociology. It's not focused on individuals as the perpetrators of racism. It focuses on systems and history and like the consequences of of those decisions that have made throughout history and in policy that have created the unequal outcomes we have today. So I just thought it was very odd that 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 approach was taken. It is odd. The subject. Yes. It, it, I think it reflects a, a marrying of public communications about things versus an academic. And it, and I think it's incumbent upon us as academics to tease those things apart and or to be transparent around when we're using kind of colloquial understandings versus academic understandings of things. Yeah. And in fact, there are two other things besides CRT that seem to be mixed into this here. One of them is what I what I've heard described as Afro pessimism, um, which, you know, we don't have to spend a lot of time here, but on that topic. But basically, the basic concept is like racism will never go away. It's always going to be there like black people. It's it's this like this idea that that racism is just a permanent fixture of life for black folks in America. And so it, it's just a very like like the, the name implies it's very yeah. pessimistic yeah, about, about uh, racism, a rich theoretical history and some of which overlaps with CRT and some of the founders of CRT. But not all of them. But it's yeah. not exactly. It's not identical no. to to CRT, and it's not inherent to it either. Like some people agree with it, some people don't. But but it's not an inherent component of CRT. So I thought that was an interesting choice. The other thing that seems to be mixed in here is a somewhat right wing caricature of CRT. Like the kind of impression you would get if you were to watch a lot of Tucker Carlson or if you were to read a ton of uh, Chris Rufo. And it seems like this isn't a coincidence because the paper cites. Christopher Rufo, which is incredible. Uh, so for the audience who doesn't and know. And Ron DeSantis, both of whom are quoted. And, and Ron DeSantis and Amy Wax. I'm going to explain some of who these figures are. So so Chris Rufo is kind of a known deceptive influence in the discourse around CRT. There are tweets where he says, we're destroying the image of CRT and we're wrapping all of these things that people don't like in under this umbrella. His work history kind of speaks for itself. He worked at the Discovery Institute, which is a politically conservative nonprofit think tank. And they have been pushing for pseudoscience like intelligent design in the classroom. At this point, I think he works at the Manhattan Institute, which is another conservative 
think tank that has really gone hard on anti-critical race theory activism and opposition to LGBTQ discussions in the classroom. So this is guys like a well-known quantity. That's happening. They also cite Amy Wax, who's a Penn law professor who explicitly stated that white Europeans are superior. We'll put this information into the show notes. It is shocking. Um, They also cite a Newsweek opinion piece as evidence for some of their claims at some point. Um, I just thought those was incredible that this was happening in this peer-reviewed article but yeah what do you make of this this is the thing that when i first read it and i'll be honest that the thing that made me most angry right like and you know tempering that anger into a measured response was really important for our team to do our authorship team to do right um because we have an established way to respond um academically to these sorts of things But I take, I'm a mostly empirical researcher. So evidence matters a lot to me, how we gather evidence, how we assess evidence. I have been following um, and engaging with the entire debate around open science and replicability and the crisis in psychological science of how do we replicate things? How are we sure we're, we're finding truth? I find this to be incredibly important for the credibility of our field, but also for helping people actually use our research to to make good things happen, right? To change their world. And so when you are pulling from evidence, I like like I like to think, would I be okay with my students, PhD or otherwise, using these sorts of evidentiary standards? And my argument here would be no. I would be, okay, I want more evidence that this is what's going on, right? I want more uh, you know, explanation as to how this evidence fits your thesis. You need to describe it better. You need to provide more information. You need to be clear as to the ideological bent of the people you're gathering data from if you didn't gather it yourself. So if you are using hearsay, you're using somebody else's evidence that they collected, you need to know how it was collected and you need to know who's doing it and for what reason. Um, I also think, again, it shows a disconnect from the long literature of people who are doing work. Like there are people in diversity and inclusion literature of very different ideological perspectives and different perspectives on the solution. The If you went and talked to CRT scholars, they have long debates. Like this is what we do in academia. We do not all agree, right? Otherwise we would have no need to publish all the things we publish because we'd all agree on the things that come out. But I think we can all agree or the majority of us can agree that using evidence that was collected by a self-proclaimed provocateur, right? Who is not shy about this. Like it's not slander to say how a person describes themselves and who is not an academic, who is not trained in data gathering or academics, right? And who has not published or put their evidence via peer review, right? Which we know is problematic in terms of having access to that, that we should take that with skepticism. And if you're going to use that, you should at least describe and explain where you got it and why we're, why you're using it and why there isn't other, better, more neutral evidence that could support your point. I was going to say, this isn't like some kind of clandestine conspiracy going on. Chris Rufo has been very public about the right. fact that he doesn't really care about evidence so much as he cares about the types of policy goals that he thinks are good and he's going to use whatever methods are necessary to get that like this is his shtick this is this is his you know he he has this tattooed on his forehead like we don't care about what the evidence you can criticize him for lots of things but he is wholly transparent in what his goals are yep there's i i respect that (laughs) i would rather know what someone's trying to do right so that i can then 
like judge accordingly. Yeah. Right. I mean, I um, wish you weren't doing it, but but yep. at least we, we he's honest about what he is doing. Right. We have different values. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but just different values and lots of things. But he's honest right. about what his goals are. And that is why if we take him at his word, we should be careful using yeah. him his evidence to support a point that he has said he is willing to go to any and all lengths to make. There, there seems to be, I think, a tension between what the actual academic CRT literature is. And you're also describing, you know, academics don't agree on everything. There's debate. There's ongoing evolutions of the scholarship in this area. And a lot of that, as we've talked about, is pretty benign. And then you have, you know, I think something that is separate from that, which exists in other aspects of our culture, that are some kind of wacky stuff that people are attributing to CRT. And those, are, I, I think, are a bit more wacky. Um, like, for example, white fragility or, uh, you know, the, orienting around the nuclear family as an aspect of white supremacy culture or something like that. And so I think sometimes me and I, I don't know, maybe this was what was happening in, with Waldman and Spar that they saw some of that stuff and they thought, oh, well, this is CRT. This is like the academic side of things, which is incorrect. But it would be, you know, incumbent on all of us just to disentangle those two things and say, listen, there's wacky stuff out there. And we agree that this may not be good for either diversity or for unity. But at the same time, like there's, you know, the actual CRT literature. Let's go and and use that instead of using more of the wacky stuff in other parts of our culture. And, and I think, you know, and to that point, any literature that's a theoretically based literature, right? If we're talking theoretically based literature, there are going to be these debates that push the envelopes of them. Like this is the whole of humanities, right? Like and many parts of theoretical social science, like, okay, if this, then this. Yes. No. Where are we drawing the boundary? Like that's the part of our dialectic as academics is where do we draw our boundaries? And we do that by pushing the boundaries and finding where the lines lay. Like that is part of what we do. So what we do in applied science as well, right? We try different things and we see where the boundary conditions lie. But in theoretical science, I mean, it's all the basis of philosophy, right? Like, okay, let's try this thought exercise and see where it leads us. Um, right. CRT has plenty of papers where it's like, okay, if this is the premise, does this also then true? Is it also then true that this holds, right? And so, of course, there's going to be academic literature that debates these things. But if you engage with the academic literature in CRT in good faith, what you see is this exact dialectic, which is where does the line, what are systems, how are they created, how are they formed? What does when you're talking about meritocracy, for instance, it becomes a very like silly talking point to say meritocracy is racist. Like when if you dig down into the literature of what they're actually saying and you engage in good faith with it, which means you assume that the people doing it are really trying to engage in academic inquiry, right? You try to put yourself in their shoes and say, okay, well, why might they be asking these questions? You could disagree then, but the best way we disagree is by putting ourselves in their shoes, trying right. to understand where they're coming from, and then saying, well, here's why I think you've missed something critical here. Um, they, The evidence around that are things like, well, people have used the myth of meritocracy in order to engage in sort of racial discrimination, which I don't think many people would disagree with. And so when you start to look at or maybe some people would. But the point is, it's not as silly and like ridiculous as people kind of. And that's the flattening that our culture has done right. to a lot of these academic topics. There is 
the benefit of making them accessible to non-academics, but there's also a risk of flattening down complex topics to something that's digestible that then can be used by bad faith actors to say, see how silly those academics are. They're not actually good thinkers at all. When if you go, you can read hundreds of pages of people reckoning with the very things that are brought up in papers like this, right? Which is, have you ever thought of, well, yeah, there's probably like 25 articles I can think of off the top of my head that engage with that exact question. So let's talk about that. Um, Like the victimization situation that they talk about here, um, which, for instance, they have a whole paragraph where they talk about the emphasis on victimization combined with the neglect of meritocracy sends a message that they do not that minority group members do not have the ability to achieve based on their own merits or efforts. Um, And then it basically has an unsighted sentence that says this kills the hope and optimism for the future and resilience. They basically says that optimism and resilience are diminished by CRT, um, by the focus on victimization. But we strong claim. It's a very strong claim that's not cited, first of all. And second of all, mistakes the fact that much of the CRT literature, like if you dig down into Kimberly Crenshaw's work, for instance, who's one of the founding mothers of CRT, um, her work on intersectionality, it starts from real victims of crime. So we're talking about victimhood in a very particular, like these are crime victims and victims of a harsh criminal justice system. So we're Mm -hmm. actually like, because they're academics, they're defining the word victim very strongly and very clearly. And that's not doing here. And so we break down and we keep saying, well, what do you, what do you think a real victim is? Because you're saying there are real victims and not real victims. So who gets to decide? And that those are things that Wildman's Bar don't reckon with. They say, well, it's almost a wink and a nod. Like there are, we know that people that aren't real victims, right? Ha ha ha. And well, who, what, when? And that isn't clear. And we think that that, again, confirms priors, which we want to be careful as academics not to do, or at least to be aware when we're doing that. Mm-hmm. Something that, uh, that most academic articles do at the end of the article in the discussion section, let's say, you want to tie the thing you've been talking about throughout your academic paper back to the real world. You want to like maybe talk about policy, maybe talk about how it, it people can use this information to better their lives or something like that. Um, what I found very troubling about this paper, the Waldman and Spar paper, is it seems to come out in support of DeSantis's Stop Woke Act, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, so I'm just going to read a somewhat longer section of the paper. Policymakers are already taking note of woke approaches to diversity in organizations, for example, in support of recent legislation to counter woke programs in business organizations in the state of Florida. Governor Ron DeSantis recently signed the Stop the Wrongs to Our Kids and Employees Act, or WOKE. In doing so, he stated that we must protect Florida workers against the hostile work environment that is created when large corporations force their employees to endure CRT-inspired trainings and indoctrination. While the conceptual analysis in the current article would support legislation of this nature, policy guidelines are also needed regarding how organizations can more positively and proactively approach diversity issues rather than simply policies that should be avoided. So I just want to zero in on this one this one line here while the conceptual analysis in this current article would support legislation of this nature and just for the audience this was a law that was deemed to be unconstitutional infringement on academic freedom by the supreme court in florida and the idea that the article goes in and says it's supporting this legislation our analysis supports this legislation i thought was 
incredible. I'm just wondering how it felt for you to read that section of the paper. So first of all, I'm pretty sure that this article was published before the Supreme Court overturned that law, right? So they were not aware of that prior to this. I I believe I'd have to check the dates on that. So don't take me at face value on that word. But but again, this is the risk, right? You're not just engaging in an intellectual exercise in this piece. This is a practical focused article speaking to organizations and trying to influence policy decisions. So there is no defense of, well, we're just we're just trying some stuff out here. We're just, you know, we're just engaging in intellectual debate. They are very clearly wanting to go beyond that to influence policy, mm-hmm. which is their right to do. But again, I tend to believe that particularly when your policies could cause harm, that you should be very careful in making sure that your evidence aligns with the recommendations that you're making. And when they say the conceptual analysis would support this act, they don't say how. Yeah. Right. They just the the only link there is the word woke, <laughs> which they haven't. We all established that they haven't well defined. And they have not provided good evidence yeah. for what a woke strategy actually is. The only evidence they have two examples of woke strategies based on the way they define it. One is quotas, which have been illegal in this country for 40 some years. Okay, (laughs) racial quotas have been illegal, which they cite and say that Victor Ray's work on critical race theory explicitly would support, which he never has and never did. And you can read his work and he hasn't done it, which has been illegal. So that we know that that is not proliferating as a policy because, right, even though people may do illegal things, right? There, if it were, we would have it being struck down all over the place. People would be suing. They're suing for all kinds of things. And the second is um, the example of Raytheon Technologies that Christopher Rufo wrote about on his blog. Yep. Okay. And misrepresented. Which misrepresented, we believe, right? Well, I, Which that could be an intellectual debate. I mean, I like, let's take. It, like, it's so clear that he's misrepresented. I mean, I don't know. I, I challenge our, it'll be in the show notes. I challenge our audience to, to go read that and, just, and find what Chris Rufo claims to have found in those materials. And and so find what these authors believe a woke strategy to be, which is focus on dividing people based on race and focus on over victimization um, and focus on and not focus on inclusion. In fact, if you look at those those materials, they talk about belonging and inclusion in like the first couple slides. Yeah. And so, you know, there isn't like we can have a debate upon the efficacy of particular types of training, and we should. And like I mentioned before, there's a long debate. There's meta-analyses on what types of training work. There was a proliferation in diversity training after the murder of George Floyd in 2020. It is worth us discussing who is getting those jobs and what are they doing because we want things, but because we want things to be effective, because we want, you know, these sort of changes to happen. That does not mean that we have to take everyone's irritation, ideologically based or not, as evidence. Even when we study things in the field, there are going to be people who, you know, strongly disagree or who fall as outliers in our data. That doesn't mean we take the outliers in our data and say, well, here, this is the real trend, right? Um, We are very careful about not doing that for a reason. And we have to be equally careful here to not take the extremes as evidence of the trend. Um, which is more difficult when you're using conceptual and qualitative data, but again, is not not impossible. And transparency is really important around that. And again, so if those are your only two 
if this is proliferating, which they argue that woke diversity strategies are proliferating, there should be many, many more examples to use. Um, and they just don't provide them. I thought it was interesting. You mentioned Victor Ray as somebody that they cite. And then he later came out and tweeted and said they were confused about his work and the way that they cited him. Another interesting yes. incident of this was Bernardo Ferdman, who is a paradox researcher. And uh, he tweeted, it's distressing that my article on paradox, which was much more nuanced, was used in, in the way it was to justify an argument that will end up being harmful, I suspect. Which is very, like, it's not what you want from the person that you're citing in your article for them to come out and say, like, I don't think you're citing me correctly. Um, so I thought that was interesting. I, yeah. I just want to, we have a few minutes left. I think we have five minutes before you have to go. I want to ask one final question. And this is a, a thing that we actually just did a conversation, a longer conversation about peer review. So I think this is a, something we'd love your, your thoughts on. What went wrong in the peer review uh, yeah. process that the flaws in this paper were left in the academic record? Mm. And what does it pretend for your area of research that such articles are being published? And not only being published, but then science communication pieces are being made by the by the journals that publish these papers. First things first, this is part of a symposium. Um, it says it on the first page of the article, document type symposium. This is part of a symposium. But that is not made clear in the body of the paper. I think symposium are kind of like special issues in terms of the way that they're talking about a particular topic. Um, they might be run. I don't know any particular background about how this was particularly run, but I have been a part of special issues before and that oftentimes we review each other's work, right? There's a particular, sometimes they're invited and that's not clear mm -hmm. who was invited to do what. Um, so it's a different than just blindly submitting things and you pull reviewers from a blind pool. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. That's um, and that partly could be the case here. There's also who reviews your paper is based on what keywords you put in. So let's look at the keywords. The they, keywords here were leadership theories, individual differences. So what reviewers are, their diversity and inclusion is a disciplinary domain that's put down here. Um, but in terms of theoretical perspectives, it's not one of the theoretical perspectives. So it's possible that there weren't even very many diversity and inclusion um, researchers mm -hmm. involved here. Okay, I would say... They, they do mention Quinetta Roberson in their notes for reading a draft of that. Quinetta Ro Roberson is one of the foremost experts in diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. She is, you know, one of the most prolific researchers in this area. Um, I would say it's, you know, worth asking her opinion on this. I would say that she shared our article favorably on Twitter um, and, you know, our response to this. So we can, you know, kind of guess her perceptions on the field. So um, again, I think hopefully this doesn't mean much for our peer review in our field in terms of what the trend is. But I do think that's one reason why it was so important that we wrote this response as a team and called it out. Because if we're presenting this as a peer reviewed article, it becomes these ideas get laundered through what we consider to be um, the mark of credibility in our field. We have had blind peer review. We have had these things. We've tested them. We've gone through and put them to the test. Um, if that's not the case, right, then we need to all be aware of that. Mm -hmm. And so I would like more transparency on what the review process was for this. Um, and if it is very consistent with prior symposium, then let's describe what the peer review process differences are for kind of submitted. I'll be honest about our response. We submitted our, you can submit, it's called an exchange instead of, you know, in um, a commentary and we presented ours. 
and we submitted it through the regular submission channels. And it was sent out to peer review to three peer reviewers, anonymous peer reviewers who did not know who we were. Um, it was double blinded in that way. And we received three peer reviews back and it was conditionally accepted at that point from the peer reviews because all three recommended accept. Um, but we were asked to make particular changes uh, along those lines by the editor um, to get it published. So we are very transparent about, you know, what peer review said, um, because I do think we are in a moment where people are talking very much about the credibility of science and the credibility of social science in our field. Um, and I think as academics, we should be really transparent about that process. And when it fails, we should call it out. We do it with replicability. We do it with, you know, we do it with all these other issues and it is no less important with conceptual pieces. In fact, I would argue it's even more important because you can find methodological issues decades later in papers, right? Mm -hmm. You can, you know, do calculations on the correlation matrices. You can say that these standard errors don't make sense. You can pull these up and debate them forever. But when you have domain specific conceptual pieces, Oftentimes the people who are best positioned to respond are people like my team, which have been doing research in this. And it becomes a cautionary tale if people take and run with things that they don't necessarily have the expertise in and present them as presenting something new and different um, when it isn't. Well, we're at time, I know, for you. So uh, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, maybe we'll have you on again to talk more about your research. I recognize it's a bit odd that we brought you on to talk so much about someone else's research, but I appreciate you did. That's okay. You know, I think there's something to be learned from that, though. We, we didn't yeah. name your paper. You're, you wrote this critique paper called Woke Diversity Strategies, Science or Sensationalism. And so that'll also be in the show notes and we'll we'll point people to that paper as well. So that's, you know, it's not that you're like just commenting on another paper. You have a peer review paper like you just described on this topic. And so that's kind of why we brought you on. But we'd love to talk more about your research at another time. Yeah. And, and I will say the exchange that we Peer, it got peer reviewed and got published in response to this paper. Our team, Bobby Thomason, Tina Opie, Tracy Sitzman, we all have between the four of us, probably over 50 years of experience um, publishing in the field of diversity inclusion. We've taught on it. We've consulted on it. We have published in top journals on it. Mm. So we are not coming to this just from an ideological bent. We are truly coming at it from an expertise bent. And our biggest concern was that peer review issue, which is, well, what does this mean? How can I, right. one of the things I said was, how can I look at my students, my PhD students who I'm trying to train to do science the right way and say, look them in the eye if I left this uncommented on. Thanks for listening. Join us next time on A Bit More Complicated. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to our podcast, leave a friendly rating, and share with a friend. If you have a reaction you'd like to share with us, please find us on Twitter at A Bit More Pod or send an email to morecomplicatedpod at gmail.com.